Earlier this month, I spent two weeks in China and then Hong Kong. My first time to both, and I have thoughts, some about investing, some about business, and some about life, which dovetail nicely as those are my three areas of focus on rule breaker investing. So, speaking most of all about China, what does a rule breaker think about the world's most populous country with its second largest GDP, and what might China mean for the rest of us? Let's talk about it on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by PayPal Credit. Summer is here, so make the most of it by booking your travel plans or purchasing your favorite gadgets with six months special financing on purchases of $99 or more with PayPal Credit. Learn more at paypal.com. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. LinkedIn Jobs uses knowledge of both hard and soft skills to match you with the people who fit your role the best. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash fool and get $50 off your first job post. LinkedIn.com slash fool. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. I hope you enjoyed last week's interview with Victor Hoskins. Really engaging, new friend of the Fool, really fun in two regards. First, just great to hear from a guy who helped land Amazon HQ2 and to hear his enthusiasm and what it might mean for those of you in the greater Washington, D.C. area. Now, that's a small minority of our listener base. So, for all the rest of you, I hope you enjoyed some discussion of real estate. It was a real pleasure to be joined by Matt Argusinger, my longtime friend and fellow fool. And Matt, Victor, and I had a lot of fun talking about all manner of business consideration around real estate, whether you're looking at it as an investor, or you work with an economic development, or you're just a fellow homeowner like me. And the week before that, it was Where Were They Then? And I've heard some great feedback already from some of you, including Darren Pryor from Australia, who helped trigger us doing that podcast. And Darren, thank you for your mailbag question, which I'll be featuring later this month, because it sounds like after doing a podcast dedicated to your previous question, we catalyzed a new question from you. This is a reminder, though, that Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag is coming up next week. So, if you'd like to get your question in, it's rbi at fool.com. That's the email address. Send us your question, story, anecdote, reflection, poem, Whatever you think fits this podcast, we'd love to feature it. Now, I don't know why I keep traveling so much this summer, but I'll be in Mexico next week when the podcast airs. Therefore, I am taping our mailbag this week. Specifically, I'm taping it on Friday, July 26th. So, if you want to be featured, email us, rbi at fool.com, or tweet us at rbipodcast Wednesday, Thursday, or early Friday to be considered on next week's mailbag. All right, so yes, I'm just back, and I think I've mostly adjusted my hours back from China. You know, when you go to a place here on the East Coast when it's noon, and there it's midnight the next day, when it's exactly 12 hours off, I think that's the largest time adjustment biologically that you're asking your personal clock to make. So now, about a week back, a week now removed from mainland China and Hong Kong, I'm Finally, no longer going to sleep at 9 p.m. and waking up at 1 a.m. the next morning for work, which is what happened a few days earlier this week. But no, I think things are mostly back to normal, and I've had an opportunity to reflect more 
on that trip. And I thought, I want to share this with you. In fact, I've gotten a bunch of takeaways. I've got them lined up here. We have a nice mix of thoughts about investing, thoughts about business or culture, and life in the world in which we find ourselves. And so it's going to be a very motley podcast. Now, I should review briefly. Uh, I flew. Landed in Hong Kong, picked up our son who had spent a month in Hong Kong. We right away flew to Beijing. So I spent my first few days, this is the first time I had ever been to China, first few days in Beijing. Then we moved on to Xi'an, the historic city and kind of the capital of the empire for several centuries before Beijing more recently became the capital of China. So from Beijing to Xi'an and then to Guilin, which is a much smaller city, but in the beautiful Li River district and uh, just stunning countryside, so feeling much more a part of nature after a few really big cities. And then from Guilin, we went on to Hong Kong for our last few days. Now, for each of those four places, if I were to give you my favorite spot that I think you should go to real quick, if you're in Beijing, I would certainly suggest you visit the Great Wall of China. I had never done so, of course. I'd never been to the country before, but I'd read about it a lot. I'd even heard that the astronauts, when they first got up above this planet, and of course, the 50th anniversary of the first spacewalk, the first moonwalk occurring this week, very much on our minds, not just here in the United States, but worldwide. Apparently, the story went that you could see the Great Wall of China from space. As it turns out, I don't believe that that is accurate. I believe that is a canard, and it might have even been a propaganda item on the behalf of the U.S. to impress the Chinese as we attempted to improve our relations with China decades ago. We said, you know, you can see the Great Wall from space. The Great Wall isn't that big. It does extend over a huge amount of territory, but if you actually tried to look at it from the moon or even well up into the stratosphere, it's just a wall. So, you're as likely to see a big wall that you live nearby as the Great Wall of China from space. But Mu Tianyu, which is where the section that we visited, is stunning, and I highly recommend that. Of course, if you're then going to go to Xi'an next, I recommend that you see the Terracotta Warriors. I'll talk about them a little later in the show, but that's a must-see, of course. Uh, in Guilin, I love the Reed Flute Cave. Now, these, this is an underground system of caves, of course, but these days, they're artificially lit up with just stunning lights in different colors, and the space, the sheer amount of cavernous greatness underneath, in this case, Guilin, highly worth visiting. Of course, karsts, which, if you don't know what a karst is, and I didn't know before I went over, you can Google it. In fact, in this country, the United States of America, you can use Google, which is maybe a spoiler alert as to where we're headed a little bit on this podcast, but you can type in K-A-R-S-T, Google it, and take a look at the stunning landscape that's all in and around Guilin, China. And you'll see it looks like big pointy green fingers popping up out of the countryside and the horizon and all around you. Just stunning. So, go to Guilin. And then finally, Hong Kong. There are lots of things to see in that amazing place, but uh, going up to Victoria Peak and getting a a high-level view of this amazing city all around you, uh, certainly, I think, like a day one thing you should do if and when you first visit Hong Kong. So, there are a few sites I saw and experienced many things besides those, but that's just a quick overview of the trip. So, I've made a list of nine takeaways, and I'm going to go through them 
from 1 to 9. There's no particular order other than maybe lightly, I think 1, 2, 3, and 4 are more serious and more high-minded and more about investing. And maybe by the time we get to 7, 8, and 9, they're a little sillier. So, that's probably a little bit of the flow here. But before I start, I want to mention that this comes from a place of humility. So, I had never been to China before. I had never been to Hong Kong before. Some of you have lived there for years. I have local friends and neighbors where I live in Washington, D.C., and a couple, one of whom is a Beijing native. And their big joke and what they're cynical about is when, let's say, an American journalist, uh, might be an NPR reporter or somebody who's intending to write a book, gets over to China, spends, let's say, one year there and writes their big book on what China means. Not only is China about geographically as large as the United States of America, but it has six times as many people. So, imagine just going, if you're a United States citizen, imagine just trying to sum up America in a year of travel, trying to talk to and see as many places as you can. It's not really that easy to do when in China you have six times as many people and a few thousand years of history. So, what this podcast is not going to do is try to make any grand pronouncements or deep reflections about China. This is not, I wish I were Alexis de Tocqueville, this is not de Tocqueville's modern-day take, a rule-breaker visits China. When I do that, I do it from a place of humility. I'm just sharing a few of the thoughts, reflections, and insights that I walked away with as I flew back on this 16-hour flight back home, the direct flight Cathay Pacific from Hong Kong to Dulles Airport in Virginia. I just started thinking about it, writing these down. I wanted to share that with you this week, but this ain't de Tocqueville. Thanks to PayPal Credit for sponsoring this episode of Rule Breaker Investing. If you have any big purchases coming up, like trips, hotels, home goods, or just about anything, you can use PayPal Credit and enjoy six months special financing on purchases of $99 or more. PayPal Credit is a digital, reusable credit line built into your account with PayPal. You can buy now and pay over time. PayPal Credit is great for big or unexpected expenses, and it can be used anywhere PayPal is accepted. Applying is easy. Just answer a few quick questions, and you'll know within seconds if you're approved. To learn more and apply, go to paypal.com. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. That's paypal.com. And thanks to PayPal Credit for their advertising support of Motley Fool Answers. All right, takeaway number one. Takeaway number one, you can't Google things. You cannot Google things in mainland China. I will admit that I take some pride in this idea, in my own mind, that it's hard to offend me. I think at the age of 53, I've had enough experiences, I've screwed up enough times, I have this idea that it would be really hard for you to personally offend me. I still believe that. And yet, I found myself nearly offended as I landed in China for the first day that I couldn't use my mobile phone, tap in some silly check a movie reference or or Google the meaning of a word or a little bit of history from Wikipedia, and I literally could not do that. So, if you've heard of the Great Wall of China, which I've already mentioned, I know some of you are aware of the Great Firewall of China, and I faced it for the first time, and it just, in the year 2019, it struck me as bizarre. Bizarre that you and I, just meandering around one of the big cities in the world, one of the most important countries in the world, we literally can't Google things. Part of my travel experience is we had a guide in each of the cities that we visited, and one of our guides, my new friend Lee, toward the end of our few days with him, 
he started finding himself wanting to learn more about us and our view of his country. Humble, wonderful man, great relationship, just a few days. And we started to realize that what he was really trying to figure out is the truth. He was aware that what he hears through state media, through television and the press, might not be fully accurate. He wasn't aware what wasn't accurate and what was. And so, even though he said he doesn't want to talk politics with us, and it would not be, he said, good to talk politics with us, and I don't spend a lot of time talking politics myself with anybody, he found himself just curious enough to want to know, is there a trade war? What is What exactly is happening? He knew enough to know that he couldn't trust what he heard. Which is not surprising when you think that somebody can't check a search engine or find generally accepted history or facts as a citizen of one of the largest, most important countries in the world. A country that has aspirations to be the most important nation in the world. And one of my beliefs is it's going to be very hard for China ever to be that in my lifetime if indeed it continues to behave in this way, thought overseer to its people. So, my new friend Lee, he had no experience or concept of religion that had kind of been wiped out before he was born. He was my age, he was in his 50s, he was curious about that. He was aware that divorce rates are very high in his country, and he assumed that in part it's because there's not a, a, an accepted or understood moral compass that he felt guided by, or that he felt many of his countrymen were guided by. Things like success and money and fortune are very important in China, as indeed they are here in the United States as well. But at least in the United States, you and I, if we have curiosity about things, we can learn about them. We can ask open questions, whether online or offline, and we can discover aspects of the world that we may not have been raised with. So, what a wonderful opportunity in any free nation in this world that no matter what you missed as a part of your childhood, you can learn more about it. You can be a lifelong learner. How difficult it is, by contrast, for many of my Chinese friends now, and I have a bunch more than I started with a few weeks ago, how difficult it is for them to find the truth when, as inquirers, they can't trust the material they're seeing or hearing, and they're discouraged from asking questions. That is a remarkable insight, takeaway number one. Takeaway number two, buy more Starbucks. Not just about Starbucks, but let's start with Starbucks. So, Howard Schultz, the longtime CEO of Starbucks, when I knew Howard some years ago, because early days he invested his company, his venture cap company, invested in our company, as I've mentioned in the past in this podcast. So, I got to know Howard some uh, a couple decades ago, and I've admired him ever since. One of Howard's big things somewhere around the year 2000 was we need to expand to China. And now, about 20 years later, I see the fruits of that forward thinking because Starbucks is omnipresent in big Chinese cities. It feels like there are as many Starbucks in their cities as you might have wherever you are in yours. So, from a shareholding perspective, I say buy more Starbucks. And why do I say that? Because those Starbucks is in those cities. I think there is even more room for more Starbuckses in Beijing, to say nothing of dozens of other Chinese cities that have populations of 5 million or more people. And we're not even including the smaller places like Guilin, which has about 1 million people, the more rural city I mentioned earlier. So I just see 
Starbucks already catching on. They're not the only ones, by the way. There are a lot of KFCs. Yum Brands is out there in force. KFCs and, and others. But as many as there might already be in 2019, you know, credit again to Howard Schultz for having that vision, I can see far more two decades from now. And to extend this takeaway number two just a little further, as I said earlier, it's not just about Starbucks. What I really walked away with is a belief that any company that you already think is really big, like looking at Microsoft, which has a trillion-dollar market cap today. A number of other American multinational companies are at or near that same level. No matter how big you think those are, I guarantee you in our lifetimes, they can get a lot bigger. Because part of the experience, for the first time for me anyway, of being in China is recognizing that the world is much, much larger than I'd previously thought. And as an investor, I'm persuaded not only should be buying more Starbucks, but really any of the globally dominant companies that we in the United States see today, let's say Alphabet or Facebook, the ones that have really good growth rates and prospects, even though, ironically, domestically, we have more skepticism about our companies than we probably had 10 years ago. But they really have a lot more room to run. And even if it's hard for Google ever to get back into China in any meaningful way, and as a consumer and a tourist, I sure hope Google does. But even if that doesn't work for them, there are just so many other places that are emerging around the world that any large multinational that you thought probably couldn't grow much from that market cap today, I think that it could. So, if you hadn't already opened your mind to that possibility, I hope you're hearing from me. I give you a green light to do so, because I think that's the right mentality. All right, takeaway number three. Takeaway number three, here's a quiz question for you. In the year 2000, 19 years ago, China bypassed what country as measured by gross domestic product? So, let you know, of course, gross domestic product, GDP, China is number two worldwide today. The US is number one. China has a higher growth rate. But in the year 2000, what country did China bypass with its GDP? And the answer is Italy. In other words, comparatively, shockingly recently, China has gone from poverty into prosperity in a way that I don't believe has ever happened in the history of the world at this kind of a scale. Because even hundreds of thousands of years ago, there were just far fewer humans on the planet. But just think about a company of about 1.6 billion people going from the GDP of Italy to number two today in just 20 years. Ridiculous progress. I think if I heard it right, you can check my math here, but I believe a generation ago, about 3% of Chinese people were going to college. Today, it's the majority of Chinese people are going to college. This is all just in the last 20 years. This is just a portion of my own, of your own lifetime. So, I deeply respect where China came from, in many ways, a poverty of its own doing, which I'll cover in a sec, but from poverty to comparative prosperity in a way that is remarkable. So, just think about a nation that had so few universities and teachers in them a generation ago, all of a sudden, graduating more people than many big nations today, all just in our lifetime. So, it is breathtaking and staggering the amount of growth that has happened in China. And I'm thinking back to Steven Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now. You'll remember that I had author Pinker on this podcast last year. 
Go back and listen to it if you didn't get a chance. I think it was an important hour that we spent together. But going back to his book, and I'm quoting, he's quoting an economist named Stephen Radley, who wrote the following, quoted in the book, Enlightenment Now. Quote, in 1976, Radley writes, Mao, Chairman Mao, Mao, single-handedly and dramatically changed the direction of global poverty with one simple act. He died, end quote. So that place of grand poverty, which was the story of China 50 years ago, Pinker in his book says, quote, Mao imposed more than communism on China. He was a mercurial megalomaniac who foisted crack brain schemes on the country, such as the Great Leap Forward, with its gargantuan communes, useless backyard smelters, and screwball agronomic practices, and the Cultural Revolution, which turned the younger generation into gangs of thugs who terrorized teachers, managers, and descendants of, quotes, rich peasants. It's interesting, having now been to Tiananmen Square a couple of weeks ago myself, to think in what esteem Mao is still held in, in his home country. The Chinese yuan, the currency, you'll see him on all the bills. They repaint a new portrait of Mao every year at Tiananmen Square. And yet, to juxtapose that against discoveries this week, I read about this in The Independent, the British newspaper, that the most informed recent calculations just completed suggest that from the years 1958 to 1962 in the Great Leap Forward, when Mao tried to get his country to catch up to Western economic benefits, 45 million people were killed by the Chinese government over those four years. It puts me in mind of the classic Joseph Stalin line, a single death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. You know, 55 million people died in World War II worldwide, the worst thing that happened in the 20th century, but 45 million in just four years were taken down in China itself. So maybe a horrendous human toll like that helps explain why Stephen Radley says that Chairman Mao did a really important thing for global poverty in 1976 when he died. I met a new friend, an expat who came and visited. We had a cocktail one night in Beijing. And he said, you know, if you want to see the real China, since the Cultural Revolution of the 60s and 70s wiped out the intelligentsia, leaving many people without a knowledge of what had happened in the history of their own country. If you want to see the real China, this friend of mine said, perhaps controversially for some of you, he said, go to Taiwan. Because the history of China is still known there, and many of its cultural practices are still practiced. So if you want to, and I've never been to Taiwan, but I'm certainly inspired to go back sometime, it is itself a controversial area of the world, mainly because of how mainland China views Taiwan. But travel tip for you if you're interested, if you want to see my friend Michael suggested the real China, go to Taiwan. All right, well, we'll leave somewhat heavy handed takeaway number three, which I feel has to be said. Uh, for a much lighter takeaway number four. Everything in China seems symbolic in a way that I find incredibly intellectually engaging and interesting. So, if you're touring the Forbidden City, uh, which is right in and around Beijing, so much of the architecture, the art, is symbolic. In fact, you can't really come across a number or a color or a creature in China that doesn't have a meaning behind it. You see it all around. A creature like a horse, 
just symbolizes success to the Chinese. Whereas, if you were born under the year of the rabbit, as my son was, turns out you're supposed to be a considerate person, a, a generous person, because that's how the rabbit is perceived. Or the color yellow was used by the emperor for imperial things. And during the heyday of the Forbidden City, of course, people couldn't even look at the emperor. They were not allowed ever to see. Even though they were in the presence of the emperor, they couldn't see him, but they would see the yellow roofs of the pagodas all around. So, yellow means emperor, whereas if you were to give a green hat, which would be a bad gift to a Chinese friend, if you were to give a green hat to a gentleman in China and he were to wear that on his head, it would symbolize cuckoldry. You would be suggesting the man had been cuckolded, the green hat. Yellow, green, horses, rabbits, and, of course, numbers. If you didn't already know this, the luckiest number in China is eight. Why? Well, in Chinese, you say ba, and that means eight. And it sounds a lot like the word for to prosper, prosperity. And so, eight puns on prosperity, and therefore, eight is broadly viewed as a lucky number in China. In fact, think back to the Beijing Olympics of 2008. Fun fact, maybe you knew this. I certainly didn't. But the Beijing Olympics launched on August the eighth month, August eighth, two thousand eight, at eight oh eight p.m. Really nifty, really elegant, and perfect for the Chinese. Eight is a lucky number. Four, on the other hand, is not. Four is said this way in Chinese, fu in Mandarin, fu, and that said with a different tone is the word for death. And so four is a really bad number. And in fact, at least one of the hotels I stayed at, even though it was more of a Western-style hotel, there was no fourth floor. So what's remarkable to me, takeaway number four, is just the sheer amount of humanity in the country—more than a billion and a half people—and how many of them have similar-minded thoughts about numbers, colors, and animals. And everything has a double meaning. And I mean that in the best sense, really. It's remarkable how thoughtful and reflective in art and architecture and culture these kinds of things consistently are. Takeaway number five, though, is as I thought about it more, I started thinking. This is with my rule breaker fool cap on. I started thinking: Is there a way to exploit this? I mean, somebody has to be exploiting this in China. For example, the lotteries. If eight is a lucky number and four is death. And you're looked down on if you were to bet four at a horse track or any kind of lucky number contest. Well, sharing my own personal perspective, I think that is flat out superstition. I think the same thing about thirteen or six 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 in the Western world. I think these are just numbers. Four comes up every bit as often as eight. And so, to me, if you have a whole nation, a hugely populous nation, going with certain numbers and not with others, thereby lies some contrarian. Economic value, so I have to believe that the smart money somewhere in China, and this probably happens all the time, is down on four. Even though you might be reviled or thought less of by the guy or gal to your left or right. In fact, it makes me want to start up a website. Forty-seven, forty-seven dot com. Four is a bad number. Seven's also a bad number in Chinese. Hilariously encouraging people to take advantage of all the Chinese superstitions, play the other side of it, and probably do pretty well. Here's another example: the year of the sheep. Sometimes it's reflected as a ram. One of the Chinese zodiac years is commonly perceived to be 
a bad year to have a child, especially sometimes a girl. In fact, I'm reading from an article here on the internet. Chinese couples shun sheep year babies. This is from 2015. Quote, some in China fear a drop in the birth rate during the year of the sheep, which began on February 19, 2015. Traditionally, Chinese women have liked to give birth to children in auspicious years, such as the years of the monkey, dragon, or pig. The bad rap over being born in the year of the sheep has to do with the belief that sheep babies will be unhappy, exhausted, and live strenuous lives. A Shanghai fortune teller told CCTV, that's Chinese Central TV, that's one of the state voice boxes, quote, if you are a sheep, you are very generous, so you exhaust your energy in doing things, so your life will be more tiresome more strenuous. There's a Chinese expression, quote, only one out of ten sheep people can find happiness in their lives, end quote. So, again, on my 4747.com website, I'm going to be advocating to have children during the year of the sheep, because about 18 years later, when they're trying to get into a competitive college, there's going to be a much smaller competitive set to get that opportunity. So, it feels to me, in a country which has so much like-mindedness around certain numbers, colors, and concepts, that to play the other side of the coin, you may be prospering in multiple ways all day long. All right, five down, four to go. Hiring isn't as simple as putting an ad in the paper or posting to a job board. When you're juggling hiring with everything it takes to grow your business, it's important that you reach the right candidates at the right time. And that's where LinkedIn comes in. Here at The Motley Fool, we have used LinkedIn for job postings for years. There are over 600 million members visiting LinkedIn to make connections, learning and growing as professionals, and discovering new job opportunities. In fact, LinkedIn members add 15 new skills to their profiles and apply to 35 job posts every two seconds. So, things like collaboration, work ethic, adaptability. LinkedIn does the legwork to match you to the most qualified candidates along these dynamics and more, so you can focus on hiring the person who will transform your business. And you can get $50 off your first job post right now by going to linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's linkedin.com slash fool. $50 off your first job post. All right, takeaway number six. I need to speak briefly just to the relationship between the United States and China. And of course, all the headlines are about the trade war. And it's real. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars of implications around tariffs, around different products, trading both ways. This is a war that didn't really exist a couple of years ago in the form it does. And I'm not sure it's going to exist five years from now. I realize there's a strong sense that this is a big thing and it's a big problem. And I certainly don't like it because I think the more we can trade ideas, goods, and traditions with each other, the better we all get. I think that's the story of humanity, so I don't like it. But I also believe that there's a lot of bluster baked into it. Part of what I saw in China is a really stable nation. They look at the U.S., and if you ever see Chinese stories, movies, novels, how they characterize us in the United States. We are the gun-toting people whose schools aren't safe. And while there have been some horrible tragedies in the United States, I feel pretty safe most of the time I walk around my home city of Washington, D.C., which is certainly a lot safer than it was by every measure of violent crime than it was when I was a kid 30 years ago. But in China, you can leave your wallet in place and it'll probably be there the next day when you come back and pick it up. I realize that may sound naive because it's a big country and not every neighborhood's the same, but relative to the United States, 
China has a tremendous amount of safety and stability, and they value that. And they have history running back thousands of years, not just a couple of hundred years. So, in a lot of ways, when you think about the U.S. and China, the two most important countries in the world today, there's a tremendous amount of shared interest between our nations in stability, in preserving world order, in keeping the the crazy fringe out, whatever that means in any context, out and away. And so, I really do think that China and the U.S. Working together are going to make for a much better world over the rest of my lifetime. The next, let's call it four decades or so. I don't know if that strikes you as a contrarian note, since it sometimes feels to me like China is being demonized. But now, having been in their country and seeing how they live, I respect and admire a lot of it. I don't admire a country that can't own its past, and I certainly don't like not being able to Google things. So we've already covered that earlier. But I want to make sure I sound a positive note here about really the strength of China and how it will help uplift the rest of the world. You know, the more good Chinese tech companies that come along, the better services that we get. Anybody who creates something awesome, whether it's a video game, a novel, or a new internet site, that can help all of us. So, from my perspective, the more and better that China gets, I think the better off my life will be too. So, even though I think the conventional wisdom is that the U.S. and China are at loggerheads. In a way that almost can't be compromised on, I think click down a little deeper. You'll recognize that we're working together with them in a lot of ways. In fact, the Economist on July 6th had an article called "Counterflow." You can check, probably you can Google this online, talking about how the U.S. and China, from a financial services standpoint and global finance, we're actually integrating and working together far more than you might expect, and in a good way that makes global commerce. Work. The French philosopher and economist Montesquieu, who influenced some of America's founding fathers and our thoughts about freedom at the time, he said classically, and I quote: "Two nations that trade with each other become reciprocally dependent. The natural effect of commerce is to lead to peace." End quote. I really believe that's true. I think that's. Clearer every day. So even though we're hearing about trade wars, think about how many fewer people are truly at war today than were 50 or 100 years ago, and about how much commerce is happening. I predict even more is happening ahead, and I do believe with Montesquieu that that knits us together toward peace. So to close with this takeaway number six, I see things much more positively than I feel like most people see the U.S. and China. All right, takeaway number seven. We were warned about this early on. I know if you've been to China, especially if you live in and around mainland China, you already know this. But for those of us who were there for the first time, you need to know this if you haven't been yet. Personal space not such a thing in China. You will regularly have people just brush past you on the street as you're walking down the street in Beijing. Maybe it's because it's 104 degrees. At least it was when we were there. So maybe people just want to get out from under the sun and get indoors. But people will just kind of bump you and not even care or notice. So I think, especially in the Western world, our sense of personal space—you have to just forget about that altogether. I had sort of a hilarious experience. We got up at Mutianyu, up a cable car to see. The Great Wall of China, remarkable views that started to get starker and starker as big black clouds started moving across the horizon and lightning started. And in fact, a huge thunderstorm started with high winds, and we were prevented from going back down the cable car back to our automobile. 
Uh, all of us up there were stuck for about an hour. And finally, as the weather subsided and it was time to get in line to take the cable car back down so people could have things like supper, the jostling started, the pushing. There is no sense of queuing up, as uh, I especially imagine just people in Great Britain. The term comes, even though it's a French word, I think we all think of queuing up. At least I do when I think of London. I think people are generally pretty civil about it. Not so in many places in China and lining up for that cable car. So I was being shoved from behind. I was half trying to maintain my position in line for the cable car. There was a railing right ahead of me, and the edge of the railing was right there. And there was an older Chinese gentleman right between me and the edge of the railing. And in fact, his crotch was right up against the railing. And he turned around at me angrily. I didn't fully understand him, but it was clear that he felt that I was pushing him up into this edge of the railing. I was, but not by my choice. I was trying to indicate to him that I was being shoved so hard from behind, I couldn't not be pushing him. This was one example of what personal space being invaded can look and feel like, but it is truly a distinctive cultural trait, probably not just of China, but many other places around the world, but very different from the Western world. Takeaway number eight. If you've ever wanted to feel like a celebrity and you're not from China per se, just show up. Because it probably won't take long if you have a white or a black face, if you don't have a traditional Chinese face, which by the way means many things since there are 56 different ethnic groups, as they take pains to point out many times as you tour China. But if you don't look like you're from there, everybody wants a photo with you. So, a number of times, even though we're just tourists, my family is being pulled aside. And as was explained by my guide, most of the tourists you're seeing in around China are from China, and they're from elsewhere in China. They're coming from rural places where they don't ever see anybody with a white face. That's a shocking sight for them. So they're excited. They want you to be part of their picture. You could spend an entire afternoon at any big tourist site and just have your picture taken with people who would love to have their picture taken with you. So if you ever find yourself at a place of low morale, you need a little bit of pick me up, just book a flight to Beijing and just hang out at the Forbidden City for one. One long, photo-filled afternoon. So, if you're still with me, hey, thanks. Here comes the final takeaway number nine from a rule breaker in China, and I just want to focus on the city of Xi'an with this. Three different observations that I had from my few days in Xi'an. The first is just a little bit of a, a low-tech, but I guess a technology reflection. I really appreciated that the stoplights in Xi'an do something that I've never seen any stoplights do in the United States of America. And that is, there's a timer on the stoplight. Now, I think a lot of us in the U.S. are used to looking. If you're a pedestrian, you're looking up for a white or a red figure, and there is a number counting. And you know how long you're going to be having to wait till you get to go to the crosswalk. Well, that's true of the stoplights in China. So you can know if you've pulled up to a stoplight and it says 48. If you do want to text somebody really quickly, you know you have 47 seconds before you're going to be holding up the people behind you, waiting for you to move through the stoplight. You can very carefully curate your experience. If you think that green light might be running out, you can literally see that it's at six, five as a green light before the yellow light. And so there are timers on the lights. It just makes you smarter. It was interesting, for example, to say, "Oh, I see. So that stoplight." Is always minute 15 green, 30 seconds red. 
I go past stoplights every day here in my commute from Washington, D.C. to Alexandria, Virginia, which I make a few times every week here. I have no idea the actual length of the stoplights because there's no numbers. I'm not getting smarter as I drive around the greater D.C. area. So I really appreciate that simple bit of technology that was very much in evidence in Xi'an and some of the other Chinese cities. So, yeah, we have lots to learn from each other in terms of best practices. A second thing that I saw in Xi'an, which I thought was hilarious, I took a photo, I might pin it up on Twitter. Fish spa. So, no doubt some of you know what a fish spa is, but I'm predicting approximately 98.5% of my listeners don't know what a fish spa is. This seems like a tourist trap. I don't think this is a real thing. But yes, you can go in, pay some money for, let's say, 20 minutes, and put your bare feet down into a fish tank and have the fish swim around, maybe nibble a little bit at your feet and clean you and, I guess, relax you. This is a fish spa. So, you see a lot of really interesting things in China, some different things. I'll give you kind of a a sad, surprising thing I saw as well. This is still part of number two weird sites, in this case around Xi'an. I saw another food cart in Xi'an, and it had Chinese characters, and below it, translated English, and it said, this shop does not welcome Japanese. Now, with our modern-day sensibilities in the United States of America, that sounds like a Jim Crow world where you're stating certain people are not welcome here. That does not happen, for the most part, in most of the Western world today. But there it was, flat out, you are not welcome here if you are Japanese. Now, there's certainly been a lot of tensions between Japan and China throughout the 20th century, uh, wars, and still, of course, modern-day tensions. But it it's really personal, and it's kind of retro, and it's a little bit more the Wild West uh, especially once you get outside the biggest city. So, from fish spas to Japanese not welcome here, let me close it out with the third and final thing that I saw in Xi'an. And if you've been to Xi'an, I'm pretty sure you've seen them too. But the Terracotta Warriors, one of the highlights of our trip, just a phenomenal sight. My favorite thing about the Terracotta Warriors is that they were discovered in 1979. So, even though this could qualify as an ancient wonder of the world today. When I was born in 1966, it would be another 13 years before anybody even figured out these things are out there. So, yes, the terracotta warriors, stone statues, life-size, individual warriors, every single one of them with unique facial features. And I think it was a farmer out in the countryside who just kind of digging, bumped into a stone statue, and all of a sudden, they dug some more, and they realized there are hundreds, if not thousands of these buried from a few thousand years ago, still kind of mysterious why exactly they were created and buried, different theories around that. But my final thought for you this podcast, my ultimate takeaway from Xi'an is, how remarkable is it to think that in 1979, we only just discovered that? What other wonders of the world are buried that you and I are still not aware of. A friend of mine who's more into paleontology than I am has pointed out that this is actually the golden age of dinosaur discovery. Did you know that? Something like a new dinosaur is being discovered, a couple new species every month or so right now because of modern technology that we have and some of the change in climate, which is opening up access and knowledge about things that were previously buried. So, it's it's remarkable to think that here in 2019, we're discovering more dinosaurs than we ever did before, or we could find one of the wonders of the world just a few decades ago unearthed for the first time. What more possibilities might be out there for you and for me, Rule Breakers? All right. Well, thanks for hanging with me all the way through nine takeaways from China. 
you know, when you do apply, at least from the United States, to go to China, you need to get a visa. The good news, though, after having gotten that extra document, is it lasts for 10 years. So I predict that I will be back to China again. And a closing thought for the travelers out there I thought about it. At the age of 53, I finally went to the world's most populous country that has the second highest GDP. And it made me wonder what other big countries of consequence in our time have I not been to? So, a new filter that I have in my head is going down the list of GDPs and saying, Have I been there? Have I been there? I'll go there next if I haven't been there. So, countries like Japan and India, which I still have not seen, I feel compelled to see now. So, that's one way of thinking about a bucket list for you and for me. Let's make sure we're getting out, seeing, living, and then feeling the most important countries and places in the world of our time. So, I really feel like I was remiss for not having been to China and Hong Kong before. And I had a great time, by the way, with our Motley Fool Hong Kong team. So, shout out to Hayes and to David. We had a great lunch together. And I didn't have as much time, probably, to say as much as I'd like to about Hong Kong this podcast. But there's a thought for you. What most important, most populous countries in this world have you not yet been to? It's amazing to me to think, in conclusion, that almost every Chinese schoolchild today, somewhere around kindergarten, gets their English name and begins to learn our language. How many of our school children are learning Chinese? So I deeply admire the efforts that China is making to connect with the rest of the world and learn us and know us. That doesn't arouse fear or resentment in me. Actually, it arouses admiration. And it's a reminder that I think each of us, wherever we are, we will inevitably grow if we connect in more with the things that we don't yet know. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.